Okay, Andrew, it's summertime as we're recording this, oh. but I want to rewind the clock to mid-May of this year. Think cool air, drizzling rain, you know, spring. Okay, I'm with you. This May, I volunteered with the Harlequin Duck Project, and we were trying to capture ducks on Upper McDonald Creek. And as we talked about in the Goton episode, you catch them by stringing a net all the way across the creek and trying to catch them as they fly down. But with all the melting snow in the spring, that creek is flowing too fast to safely walk across. So a few people and one end of the net get carried across to the other side in a raft. So did you get to go across the creek? Well, no, I stayed behind to help spot the birds with binoculars. But at the end of the day, everyone on the other side had to come back and I volunteered to help catch the raft and pull them to shore. The raft really conveniently has a handle on the bow that helps you grab it. And I leaned over to grab it, totally missed and fell face first in McDonald Creek. (laughs) Ouch. Yeah, I was totally soaked. Well, it's uh, pretty cold in the spring. Did you have a change of clothes? Well, yes and no. Uh, It was very cold, but I didn't have any spare clothes. The volunteer paddling the raft that I failed to catch had a spare pair of long johns, and despite my insistence that I'd be warm enough, made me go change into them. So you had warm legs and a bruised ego, but isn't this episode about many glaciers? Okay, let me finish. That volunteer's name is Gerard, and I'd met him before because he drives a school bus for some of the local students I've led on field trips, but through the Harlequin Project, I got to know him a little better, and a few weeks later, I had the chance to get him in the studio. Yeah, my name is Gerard Bird. I'm born and raised about nine miles from Glacier National Park in a little town of Martin City. He's the sort of wonderful person that seems to know everyone and can do anything. What were you doing just before this interview? We were helping band songbirds. Yeah, trapping and banding. I think he volunteers with every single wildlife research project in the park. Uh, We started about 12 maybe 13 years ago, helping out with the Wolverine Project, got involved, and we put in roughly 175 backcountry miles. Did you make him come into the studio just to return his long johns? No, he's got, he's got wonderful taste in long underwear, but that's not why I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to talk to him about a trip he did with the Glacier Institute in 1986. Glacier Institute was founded in 1983, started working in 84, I came on board in 85. I'm a school bus contractor. They were looking for someone to transport students around the park, specifically up over Logan Pass. Wait, so what is the Glacier Institute? The Glacier Institute is one of the park's three official partners. They offer hands-on, field-based learning opportunities for both kids and adults all throughout Northwest Montana, and they do a lot of work here in Glacier. There's grizzly classes, flower classes, and then some geology classes, which included glaciology as well. And this one particular class, we were hiking into Grinnell Glacier, and it was a geology class, but one of the founders had wanted us to go and meet this uh, gentleman that was given, I can't remember where he was from now, but anyway, he was given a speech on Grinnell Glacier, and so... The guy's name was Bob Anderson, and he was a geologist with the California Institute of Technology. And he wasn't just giving a talk on Grinnell Glacier, he was giving a talk in Grinnell Glacier. He had uh, an access point that we were able to enter underneath this glacier. Into an ice cave. It was about maybe three foot high, and it kind of went back maybe 20-some feet. And the times I've spent in other park units like Mammoth Cave National Park, one of the biggest takeaways was just how dark it got. Like, what was the lighting? Oh, straight up. I mean, it's no different than a regular cave. If there were human bodies blocking that entrance, yeah, it it would be no different than being in an underground cave. 
As I looked around, there was probably 20 of us crowded into this small space, and there was a flash uh, photographer taking tons of photos. Leaned over, and I said, Lex, what? how come this is so obnoxious? He goes, Jordan, National Geographic's in here doing a photo op here under this glacier. National Geographic was there? Yeah. They published a 20-page article not long afterwards, which really reads like an introduction to Glacier, where it is, what it's all about, a harrowing search and rescue tale. And here's the one photo they used from the ice cave. Wow. This is crazy. So this is under Grinnell Glacier? Yeah. The photo, it's it's really dark. This guy's wearing bright yellow pants sitting on the ice. And yeah, it's, it's in Grinnell Glacier. I've been to Grinnell Glacier a handful of times, and this looks nothing like anything I've seen up there. It's like a totally different world. Yeah, and it's hard to tell in the photo. I asked him what the weather was like outside, and he said it was sunny, but doesn't look no. at all like that. It just it's looks dark. Cold. Gerard described these little threads of ice that would dangle from the ceiling of the glacier. And if you looked at it too long, either your breath or your headlamp would even melt them. So it was a really powerful experience for him. Well, the funny thing was, is um, I had visited with my wife when I came out and I said, oh my gosh, honey, you got to come in and look at this. I said, this was incredible. I was so moved. Well, raising five kids and whatnot, it, it just was about three years later and we decided that we could go back in and we hiked in come to this rock face and i and we this is where the glacier was i kept looking at the rock face thinking god maybe i'm on a whole different but i i I did recognize the area where we entered and the glacier had melted back about 200 plus feet i was absolutely astounded three years three years that's when i really became aware of of man's impact on our our beautiful planet yeah so if that's how much it changed in just three years what has he noticed in the last 30 years since then yeah that was something i was really interested in but he surprised me when's the last time you went back to grinnell glacier oh it was back then probably 89 really yep haven't been back since i haven't been back to there since i've done a lot of different areas in the park since but um not not been back there since 89 Wow, 30 years. I can't imagine what he'd say if he got to see it now. I know. We have got to get Gerard to Grinnell Glacier this summer. Welcome to Headwaters, a Glacier National Park podcast. Brought to you by the Glacier National Park Conservancy and produced on the traditional lands of many Native American tribes, including the Blackfeet, Kootenai, Salish, and Galice Bay people. We're calling this season The Confluence, as we look at the ways that nature, culture, the present, and the past all come together here. I'm Michael. I'm Andrew. And we're both rangers here. And today we're going to be taking you on a journey to the Many Glacier Valley. Nestled in the northeast corner of the park, Many Glacier is one of its most spectacular destinations. I know every time my family's come to visit, we've made a point of taking Highway 89 on the east side of the park just to get there. Typically, the road is open from mid-May to late October, but the high elevation trails have a much shorter season because they're only reliably clear of snow in August. According to longtime Many Glacier Ranger Bob Adams, there are two trails in particular that people come here to see. Today, that would be the Grinnell Glacier Trail, and that would be the Iceberg Lake Trail, which is... This area is popular, like really, really popular. But there are lots of people, roughly 600 or more a day. That 600 is on each trail. So this isn't the place for solitude. 
Not exactly. And to make it even more extreme, Bob sometimes has to close one of those trails for bear activity. And if the Iceberg Lake Trail is closed, then... You'll get 900 people on the Glacier Trail. 900 people on the Grinnell Glacier Trail? So that may not be what you want. It may be exactly what you want because you maybe feel safety in numbers. That's, that's a false assumption, but people make that assumption. Why do so many people come here? I asked Diane Sign. She's a ranger, and she spent more than 40 summers in Many Glacier. It not only has the, the actual glaciers that are still hanging in there, just barely, then we also have the historic hotel. We have, in my opinion, the, the best hiking trails in the park. So um, if you just wanted one location that sums up all that's excellent about Glacier National Park, it's Many Glacier. And yes, this is a commercial for Many Glacier. <laughs> and she's not totally joking about the commercial thing. The marketing of Many Glacier and of the Glacier National Park region as a whole is a really important part of the park's history. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, in the early days of Glacier National Park, a lot of the infrastructure was built by the Great Northern Railway. And the railway executives wanted this place to look like the Swiss Alps. Yeah, there's definitely Swiss architecture noticeable, not just at the Many Glacier Hotel, but the Lake McDonald Lodge too. But why Swiss? That's actually a pretty interesting story. To learn more about it, I decided to join Diane Sign, the ranger you heard a minute ago, on a tour of the Many Glacier Hotel. Well, I'm jealous. Luckily for you and our listeners, these tours are offered during the summer at the Many Glacier Hotel and Lake McDonald Lodge. You can find the schedule in your ranger-led activities guide, which you'll receive at the park entrance station. My name's Diane Sign. I'm a seasonal ranger here with the National Park Service. I have done this for a whole lot of summers. This is our daily walking tour of the historic Many Glacier Hotel. So before I start- She told us about how she first fell in love with Many Glacier as a child on a family camping trip. And all through college, worked here in the summers as a singing waitress. Wait, she was a singing waitress? Yeah, as she tells it. In that era, all the employees at the Many Glacier Hotel were hired to staff the regular hotel positions because they all had music or drama backgrounds. And as a little girl, just starting out as a cellist, I thought, that's what I want to do. Why did they do that? Well, in those days, the Many Glacier Hotel was a bit beat up and weathered. So, to attract guests, the manager decided to use music. Well, why have I never heard Diane sing at the hotel? Well, she's not a singing waitress anymore. Uh, After those summers singing and waiting tables, something changed deep inside of her. After having worked here for four years for the hotel, my life was warped. I was hooked on this place, and I figured out how to become a park ranger. And once Many Glacier wormed its way into her life, It never left. Along the way, I met my husband, who was another ranger here. We got married at Lake Josephine, had our wedding reception here at the dining room of the Many Glacier Hotel. My my stepdaughter met her husband here as well, and the the tradition has continued. So, Many Glacier. But this is all a bit of a digression because. Although this place is important to Diane. The Many Glacier Hotel is considered to have national significance. It has value to the American story as a place that ties us to the past, not only the past with visitor experiences, but the past with the early development and advertising of national parks. Diane told us about the construction of the building in the winter of 1914 when temperatures hit 40 below. Okay, we've both been here in the winter and 40 below is cold. It's very cold. As Diane described it, the workers the Great Northern hired 
were hardy Scandinavian descendants, and they could withstand hardy winters. And the story is the finished hotel was pretty impressive. Paint a picture for me. Well, as you approach the hotel, a friendly bellhop, clad in Alp-style lederhosen, opens the front door and offers refuge from the harsh winds of the valley in the warmth of the lobby. Wait, okay, lederhosen? We'll get back to that in a minute. Okay. Once you're inside, the lobby is vast and echoey with a hodgepodge of different styles. A massive copper fireplace anchors one end, while the other opens up to an elegant spiral staircase. Naturally, your gaze will be drawn up as your eyes trace the giant Douglas fir beams towards the ceiling. And dangling from that ceiling is an impressive array of Japanese-style paper lanterns. Okay, so I'm standing in a Wild West Montanan Swiss chalet with Japanese paper lanterns? Now you're catching on, that's right. <laughs> but even though there's a lot going on, the thing that really pulled me in was those giant Douglas fir beams. And according to Diane, this was their intended effect. The idea behind the design of both this Many Glacier Hotel and the Glacier Park Lodge at East Glacier, they were originally referred to as big tree lodges. The idea is that you can be down here in the lobby and you can actually feel like you're in the forest with the trees rising above you. That makes a lot of sense having stood in them, but you still have not addressed the Lederhosen thing. Okay, okay. Well, part of it is actually an accident of history. In 1914, as construction was just about to begin for the Many Glacier Hotel, World War I cut off Americans from some of their favorite European vacation destinations. The Great Northern saw in this an opportunity to put the American West on vacationers' radar, and they started to market this area as a replacement for the Swiss Alps. Okay, but people go on vacation to Spain or to Germany. Why Switzerland? Well, as Diane tells it, Louis Hill, who at the time was the president of the Great Northern Railway, just really liked Swiss architecture. He had a home outside St. Paul where his family would go for winter getaways and ice skating parties, and that home was designed as a Swiss chalet. But he also had a winter home at Pebble Beach, California. In fact, his home became part of the golf course there. The design for his Pebble Beach home was also Swiss architecture. So the guy just had a thing for Swiss chalets. How'd the Great Northern get word out about the area? Well, they decided to do this big advertising campaign called See America First. See America First, huh. And the idea there was to try to convince Americans that vacationing in the national parks was the patriotic thing to do. They also gave artists free trips out here. And as you can imagine, once those artists saw this place, they took the idea of See America First and just ran with it. One of these artists was the writer Mary Roberts Reinhardt. She was a very well-known writer of the time. She went on to write a couple of books about her experiences in Glacier Park. She said, I have traveled a great deal of Europe. The Alps have never held this lure for me. Perhaps it is because these mountains are my own in my own country. So that was her idea. You know, be a patriotic American, see America first, come to the Switzerland of North America, come to the Many Glacier Hotel. Okay, so this marketing campaign is why we have all the Swiss buildings around Glacier. Exactly, and it's had a pretty big impact on the way people use the park even to this day. But it also starts to get at something that's really central to the mission of the Park Service. What do you mean? Well, we're supposed to be preserving these places for future generations, but our mission is also to allow for their enjoyment today. That can be a tough act to balance. 
Okay, I see what you're getting at. People come to Mini Glacier to see the bears and the glaciers and to feel a sense of wilderness, but their very presence alters those things. Right, the Mini Glacier Hotel and the marketing around it got a lot more people to come out and enjoy this area. But it also changed the character of the valley. When people and nature come together, both are changed by the encounter. But that's not always a bad thing. Certainly not. Encountering the natural world is an important way that we can learn and grow as people. I know that hiking here in Many Glacier has changed both you and I, but in our next story, I'd like to look at a way that we collectively as people have changed Many Glacier as well. Although we might not have meant to. So, you know how we've been talking about doing a hike in Many Glacier? Yeah. Well, I just talked to Lisa McKeon. She's a physical scientist with the USGS. She invited us to go up to Grinnell Glacier with her next week. Oh my gosh, we've got to bring Gerard. I thought you might say that. So I asked Lisa about it, and it turns out that they actually already even know each other from some projects he's volunteered on, and he's welcome to join us too. Of course they know each other. Well, I've got to call him. Yeah, let's get him on the phone. Each episode, we seem to cover at least one thing that, like this podcast, wouldn't be possible without the support of the Glacier National Park Conservancy. With the help of some friends over there, we got the number of executive director Doug Mitchell and decided to call him up out of the blue to ask about these projects. For this episode, we wanted to ask about the restoration work done on the Many Glacier Hotel. Glacier Conservancy, Doug Mitchell speaking. How can I help you? Hey, Doug. It's Andrew and Michael. How you doing? Hey, guys. Great to hear from you today. Likewise. We wanted to call because for this episode, I had the chance to go on a tour of the Many Glacier Hotel with Diane Sign, and she pointed out a staircase to me that she mentioned you might have had something to do with. Ah, uh, the famous double helix staircase. To be able to bring that back here in the 21st century um, is really a treasure, and those people who haven't seen it ought to definitely get out there and take a look. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, this magnificent, as you said, double helix, like kind of DNA strand staircase. Yeah, you know, we joked uh, a little bit around here that they need a T-shirt for the lodge that says history, it's in our DNA. And and history, really, and historic renovation is in our DNA here at the Glacier Conservancy as well. And and that is a property at Many Glacier that had fallen in disrepair. And actually, some had talked about tearing it down. and, And what a great decision not to. Absolutely. Has the Conservancy had a chance to be involved in any other historic preservation projects in the park? We really have spent um, a lot of time and focus on that because really our future is part of celebrating our past. There's a lot of different kind of places that we've been able to help, like the Wheeler Cabin and the Sperry Chalet, of course, and the Walton Ranger Station. And those kinds of historic preservation projects are ones that we've been very proud to uh, be involved in over the years and and, um, really, we think, add to the fabric of of this great tapestry that makes up Glacier National Park. Well, thanks for making the project possible in the first place, uh, and thank you for taking some time out of your day. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Call anytime. All right. Bye, Doug. All right. Cheers. Before the break, I found out that I had a chance to get Gerard back to Grinnell Glacier for the first time in 30 years. So I called him. Naturally, Gerard's a busy guy, so I didn't get a hold of him the first or second time I called. Hey, Michael, Gerard here. Yeah, I haven't forgot about your head. But after playing voicemail phone tag, I reached him and invited him to join us. Well, we're going on 
Tuesday uh, with Lisa McKeon. So you're certainly welcome to tag along on that. Oh, if I you would want. love to. I'll have to look at my calendar to see uh, what, what's on there. But I, that would be a wonderful invite. Thank you. The next day, he shot me an email. He could make it. So we had everybody meet at park headquarters and wasted no time getting going. Because if you're headed to Mini Glacier, you should plan on an early start. Whether you're looking for a parking space or a campsite, everything fills up early. Like, really early. And on top of that, it's not especially close. It's the farthest main entrance from the airport and from the west entrance alone. It takes about two and a half hours whether you take go into the Sun Road to St. Mary or Highway 2 under the south end of the park. But we found a spot and set off on one of the crown jewels of Glacier's trail system. Now, the trail is popular not just because of its destination, but because of the scenery along the way. If you're not looking at wildlife, you're looking at towering snow-capped mountains or crystal clear lakes. Round trip, it's 11 miles and you gain 2,600 feet of elevation, so it's not an easy hike. In fact, one of the fan favorite ways to do this trail is to actually skip the first few miles entirely. The Glacier Park Boat Company offers historic wooden boat tours and some of their tours include a hike to the glacier. Taking that boat shuttle shaves off nearly four miles of the hike, but none of the elevation. If you're interested in boat tours in Mini Glacier or anywhere else in the park, it pays to plan ahead. We didn't catch a boat, though. We just hiked. And you don't have to hike too far before you stumble into one of the most famous views in the whole park, a bright blue Grinnell Lake tucked into the mountains. And if you've ever seen a poster of the park, odds are it was a picture of Grinnell Lake. In fact, Lisa McKeon told us she had a poster of the view in her college dorm room. Wait, wait. Yeah, <laughs> I've never oh. I've been up this trail so many times. I never thought about that. Oh, good. But uh, you know the classic Grinnell view. Good right story. Here. Yeah. When I worked for a different agency in a different state, that same poster was on the wall in the office next to me. And I had a funny experience with this view as well. When I got hired, I was in college and I was so excited about it. I'd never been here before. And so I Google image search Glacier National Park, downloaded some cool pictures for my like phone background. And I didn't ever really look up where it was, but I was hiking up here for the first time. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the view <laughs> from my it. phone. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I took my own photo from that spot no and way. I still have it as my That's still your background? Yeah. This whole time. Good story. So, That's great. I was like, oh. This is it. This is why I came here. And it is so easy to get swept away by the beauty of this trail, by the wildflowers, by the wildlife, whether it's mountain goats or bighorn sheep. But the entire time I was distracted, wondering how Gerard was going to react once we finally saw the glacier. And the trail does a really good job at building that anticipation because you can't really see it until the very end. But after a few hours and a few thousand feet, we made it. We crested that final hill and were able to look down at Grinnell Glacier. And it was the first time any of us had seen it that year, but for Gerard, it was the first time seeing it since the 80s. All right, Gerard, what's the big reaction to this big view? That's our producer, Daniel. There was just more snow and ice here. Right here, there was no snow. Gerard's a guy who always has something clever to say. I had never seen him at a loss for words, but he stood there for a minute, stock still, staring out at the ice in disbelief. Holy cow. Wow. I felt pretty fortunate to be there in that moment with Gerard. It left him totally speechless. And experiences like his are as powerful as they are rare. 
in the grand scheme of things, most people are lucky to see a place like Grinnell Glacier once in a lifetime, let alone have the chance to revisit it. I mean, growing up in Ohio, I could have driven in any direction for several days and never seen anything quite like it. And that's where Lisa's work comes in. Lisa McKeon is a physical scientist with the USGS, or United States Geological Survey. And over the course of her career, she's taken experiences like Gerard's and made them a lot more accessible. No, I agree. I mean, we've got, you know, area change data. We've got some volume estimates. We've got mass balance. We have a lot of quantitative data looking at change. Most people can't relate to that. And they can look at a pair of images and go, wow, something's happening there. Yeah. The USGS's repeat photography project is an effort to visualize glacial change, not with graphs or charts, but with pictures. By retaking historic photos of glaciers throughout the park, you can see the change that's happened in the intervening years with your own eyes. And Lisa's been involved since it got started in 1997. Yeah, I got swept up into doing repeat photography right at the very beginning. Jerry DeSanto had brought in this repeat pair early in the spring and showed Dan, and we had decided, oh yeah, let's, let's do some of this. Let's document glaciers in the park with photography. And then later that summer, Vice President Al Gore decided to come out and have a little event here at the glacier. And they, he was talking about climate change. Like right then at 1997, the media came out and we had taken a few repeat photos and they couldn't get enough of them. You know, it was the mm. first, some of the first really visual yeah. evidence that people could relate to of, with this idea of climate change. But it struck a chord like as soon as you started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they're so easy yeah. to... Yeah, they answer themselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't really need any text, nothing. It's just... And it's, it's not... A picture really is worth a thousand words. Because I could read through statistics about how Boulder Glacier's area today is 35,298 square meters when it used to be 829,577 square meters. Or I could show you a picture. Well, not really, this is a podcast, but you could find the photo from a 1932 horse packing trip to Boulder Glacier, where 80% of the frame is filled with ice and four people stand there staring into the mouth of a towering ice cave. When Ranger Jerry DeSanto took that same photo just 50 years later, the frame was empty. The ice had receded, revealing only barren rock and the distant mountains. These repeated photos have made it possible for people, no matter where they are or when they are, to make sense of this change. But while these repeated photos are easy to understand, they're quite difficult to capture. Some of them take quite a while. Some are, you know, much harder than others, but it's been amazing. <laughs> Sometimes when you think, oh, I know where that one is, and you go, oh, no, I guess that's not it. Oh, it's up here. So then you climb up. Oh, wait, no, no, no. It was down quite a bit. And you just it can go up and down, up and down. We've gotten better at it for sure. They don't physically mark any of the sites, so they rely purely on perspective to initially find the right spot. And one thing that's helped a lot is technology. It's been really helpful with Google Earth now because you can kind of go in the landscape and line up the peaks pretty well that way before you get out in the field. The next part of our day was actually taking a repeat photo. And while Lisa had taken this repeat photo before, had seen it on Google Earth, even had the GPS coordinates, she gave us the authentic experience. Using a printed photo, we had to line up what we could see, boulders in the foreground, mountains in the background, with the landscape in the picture, which was easier said than done. Over that ridge. We gotta go further that way. Yeah. 
We knew from the picture that we'd have to go up, so we started up this moraine or hill of loose rock, feeling pretty good about it until it dropped off and we had to climb down the boulder field and scramble around until we saw this snow patch and then we had to go over the snow patch. Needless to say, it took a while. And as we were searching, we had to be very mindful of timing. Because a lot of factors go into a successful repeat photo. The time of day can cast shadows off the mountains that make it harder to see the ice. And on a larger scale, the time of year is important. Seasonal snow is a huge obstacle to taking a good photo. You have to wait so long. I have people in June asking if they can come to the park and take some photos for me. And I have to say, well, you can't really until... You know, the end of August at the earliest, maybe, or in September. So you got to wait for the snow to melt so you can see the actual margin. So are we seeing snow there on top of the... Yeah, it's mostly, yeah, it's mostly... And even we were cutting it close, right? Yeah, quite honestly, our trip was really more about getting a behind-the-scenes look at the process, and not necessarily because Lisa needed to repeat this particular photo. The thing is, though, I don't have the moraine in front. No? You know, because that's going to be... Once you finally find the place where the photo was taken, your last step is to get the camera set up and line up the shot. Yeah, so I'm just putting the camera on the tripod and then I'll just kind of start lining things up and slightly overshoot it so I can crop it down a little bit, but yeah. I try to match it as, close as, as closely. I haven't taken any photos all summer, so <clears throat> half the battle is remembering how to use this camera. <laughs> No pressure, you just got... Yeah, right, yeah. I'm not even, like, paying attention to that. <laughs> <laughs> Once it's all said and done, you've got the photo. If it's good enough, Lisa will line it up next to its historic reference photo back at the office and upload it onto the Repeat Photography Project webpage, where you can access all of them. And at the time of this recording, at least 80 photos have been repeated of 20 different glaciers throughout the park. But after spending the day playing research assistant to Lisa... We wanted to take a repeat photo that had never been done before, one that had her in it. In the summer of 1988, the year before Gerard returned to the glacier with his wife, a teenage Lisa McKeon had hiked with her parents up to Grinnell Glacier. When they got to the top, Lisa posed for a photo. With a white tank top, yellow shorts, and some very 80s sunglasses, Lisa stepped out onto Grinnell Glacier for a picture. With a grimacing smile that screamed, Mom, please don't make me take another photo. Lisa unwittingly created the perfect opportunity for a future repeat picture. So, Michael, when I pulled out that photo of Lisa up at Grinnell Glacier, that was your first time seeing it, right? Yeah, no, it was. And it took me a second to even figure out what the photo was of, let alone who was in it. Do you recognize Lisa in them? Would you have known that was her? I don't think so, no. You'd have been like, who are these people? <laughs> Look at this lovely picture. What if Gerard was like in the background? <laughs> That's right, wouldn't that be cool? He's down below us yeah. somewhere in, in the, the cave, cave, like going <laughs> I tried to find the spot for Lisa to stand and recreate her vacation photo, but I ran into a problem, the lake. Spent the last 10 minutes or so trying to find uh, this other spot that we have from one of Lisa's photos from the 80s. Uh, and in the 80s. I keep, coming further down this way. Um, and I still think I've got to go, we've got to go a lot further that way to get to the spot. Um, I think where you were standing is in the lake at this point. Yeah, um, I would guess. So 
I don't think we're gonna be able to get you back to that yeah, spot. Yeah, I know, right, right? <laughs> Finding the nearest dry spot to where she had stood in 1988, Lisa replicated the pose and grimacing smile. Daniel started to wonder if these photos might be used someday too. What about the, the next 20 years and like the photos that you're in, do you think that people working for USGS in the 2050s will be using photos of you as a teenager and repeating those? <laughs> I have not submitted these to the archives yet. <laughs> Who was that babe? <laughs> uh, we'll see. I, yeah, I'd probably rather have those submitted than now. But certainly, I mean, it's really exciting thinking the, the photos I'm taking now will certainly, you know, yeah. be used in decades to come. This place has meant a lot to Lisa. Some of her best memories are here in this glacier basin. I've been lucky enough to, to come up as you know, a youth, and I've brought both of my daughters here because I think it's a really special place and I want them to see the beauty and and to see the change, you know. I want them to have their own memories of what it was and then be able to see how it's changing. Mm -hmm. And my husband proposed to me here too, so oh. I have a lot of a lot of great memories associated with yeah. this place. Where was that? Um, I think it was right down on some of these rocks here, uh -huh. actually. I don't even remember. <laughs> the exactly, the spot, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful piece of slick rock like this. Over a lifetime of visits, she has seen so much change. Not just to the glacier, but to people's understanding of it. And to our understanding of the changing climate. Well, our glaciers are going. They're on a track to disappear now. But I think what we've done is helping the world understand the connection between climate change and what's happening on the landscape. Yeah, mm -hmm. a, a little piece of that, you know. I, this happens to be a really visible piece, but there's so many other ways that climate change is impacting this park that are not as visible as a glacier melting away. They get people thinking about climate change, and I love that maybe it begs the question of, wow, what else is happening in this park? And there's scientists out there figuring that out, and there's people maybe looking a little more closely for it in their own experiences here. It made me wonder, when did Gerard learn that the changes he'd seen up here were part of a wider, global phenomenon? Yeah, that's something I was wondering too, and I asked him, like, were you aware of climate change when you made that trip up to Grinnell? I was aware that something was taking place because of humanity or, or how we were living, because when I come back that, that three years, I was like astounded. I was just so impressed that we could get underneath a glacier at that time, and I told my wife, I said, oh, honey, we gotta go back in, I gotta show you this. This was the coolest experience. And so I, I wasn't really aware of it at that time. It was a three years later. So it sounds like you noticed that something was going on just from your experience here. But later did you read in the paper or hear on the news about climate change science and realize, oh, that's what I saw at Grinnell Glacier. Yeah, then the pieces started fitting the puzzle and I was like, wow, yeah, I, I witnessed something there that was pretty profound and didn't know it at the time. With all the good memories from this place, but also all the evidence of melting, I wanted to ask Lisa how she felt about Grinnell Glacier on the whole. Does she have a good or bad feeling from this place? Yeah, I think what you described bittersweet is exactly what it is, because it's always a stunningly beautiful place, but the glacier's shrinking. I mean, that's one of the main comments I get back from the repeat photos, is people feel loss. But when I asked Lisa if she still had hope, she perked up a bit. I do have hope, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't, I don't have hope that these glaciers are gonna last here, but I'm hopeful that climate change is, is not gonna be the end all for this planet. Before we left, Lisa wanted to walk up to the glacier itself. 
to let us see what was happening to it with our own eyes, hear it with our own ears. As we approached, the sound of melting water rushing off the glacier turned into a roar. I had to shout just for Lisa to hear my question. Lisa, where's all this water coming from? <laughs> it's coming from the glacier, every bit of it. It's melting off the glacier. It's quite a torrent today. It's a hot day in the glacier basin and things are cranking. As we stepped onto the glacier, we reflected on what made this change so meaningful. The earth has always been changing, and glaciers have advanced and retreated many times. But something about this felt different. Yeah, I guess the fact that these changes that maybe historically happened on like geologic timescales are now happening on human timescales yeah. makes it really yeah. uh, dramatic. Yeah. Very poignant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where the repeat photography comes into play. That's, that's very visual. You can mm -hmm. see that. You don't need to be one political party or the other, old or young. You can see that in the blink of an eye right there. I think for me, I feel part of this change. There's something major going on. Mm -hmm. That's climate change. And, you know, ice melts when it gets warm. And we're part of that equation. I'm part of this. But I also feel like part of the solution to not necessarily changing the trajectory for these glaciers, but in a larger sense, this brings awareness. It's, it's pretty stark. It's, it's raw. Well, it's such a quick change in geological time. And there was change in the past, but it was thousands of years. I mean, what I've witnessed in just my little lifetime here is incredible. Your grandkids, your great-grandkids won't see this. It's brought an awareness to me for just being present. You know, this mm -hmm. is all we have. T tomorrow's not here, yesterday's gone. This is all we have. We're just fortunate to be able to witness the last part of Grinnell Glacier. Mm -hmm. That's our show. If you're interested in learning more about the USGS Repeat Photography Project, climate change, or are interested in getting to Grinnell Glacier yourself, we put links in the show notes for more info. Thanks for listening. Headwaters is a production of Glacier National Park, with support from the Glacier National Park Conservancy. The show was written and recorded on traditional native lands. Andrew Smith and Michael Face produced, edited, and hosted the show. Ben Cosgrove wrote and performed our music. Alex Stilson provided tech support. Quinn Feller designed our art. Renata Harrison researched the show. And narrated the credits. Lacey Kowalski was always there for us. And Daniel Lombardi and Bill Hayden were the executive directors. Support for this show comes from the Glacier National Park Conservancy. The Conservancy works to preserve and protect the park for future generations. We couldn't do it without them. And they couldn't do it without support from thousands of generous donors. If you want to learn more about how to support this podcast or other awesome Conservancy projects, please go to their website at glacier.org. Of course, you can always help support the show by sharing it with everyone you know, your friends, your family, your dog, and also leave us a review online. Special thanks this episode to Gerard Bird, Diane Sign, Bob Adams, and Lisa McKeon.